Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles and uh, open up to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And uh, we are continuing through our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one out of the pew in front of you. Um, if you're online with us, thank you for joining us. Make sure you have a Bible handy, unless of course you are uh, driving In that case, listen closely and then go back and read it when you're not driving. All right? And uh, we're actually, so uh, when we first started this series, I uh, communicated we're going to take a kind of a panned out approach to Genesis and go a couple of chapters at a time. And uh, today I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit and we're going to just focus on one chapter and we're probably going to do that. Uh, the next several weeks, uh, which may push our series out a little bit, but uh, there was no way we could adequately do justice to this portion of Genesis. And there's so much here I don't want us to miss as it focuses back in on the gospel and our call as followers of Jesus. And so if you are just joining us for the first time, I encourage you to make it your aim over the next couple of weeks to start at Genesis 1 and just read up to where we are now in Genesis 17 because it's going to make it so much clearer for you uh, as to what's happening and what's going on in the midst of this narrative, in the midst of God's redemptive story, starting all the way at creation, seeing the transgression of man, and then in the midst of that, recognizing the redemptive power of our God. Now, here at the Evangelical Free Church of Canton, our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature. Everyone say mature. Mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. At the core of that mission is the gospel. Simply put, the word gospel means good news. Everyone say good news. With good news, there also comes bad news. The bad news is you are a sinful being. No matter how good you think you have been, when we recognize that God's standard is His holiness, we realize That none of us will cut it. Everyone say, that's bad. It gets worse. The payment for sin is death. Now, you might ask, why is it death? And uh, I plan to explain this one way, and then 
My brother Jason shared with me a much better way to explain this this morning. So I'm totally using it. And he talked about uh, the head coach of uh, Kentucky, was it the basketball team? The Kentucky basketball team said, if you get a giant bucket of ice cream and you take just a little bit of poop and you put it in the bucket, what happens? The whole bucket is bad, right? Yes, I heard that. Sin is the same way. No matter how small we think that sin is, when dropped into the fabric of our being, it taints the whole. And you might ask, well then, how is there any hope for us? Because the only way to purify that filth from our lives is to empty the bucket and refill it. Right? And you might even say, Give it a really good scrubbing. This is where the good news comes in. In order to be pure again, Jesus paid the price for you. God, desiring that all would reach repentance in 2 Peter 3, 9, and live in fellowship with Him, sent His Son Jesus to pay the price, the wage of sin, which is death. He emptied himself so that there was a way for you to be purified and made new. Through Jesus, anyone who recognizes their own inability to be in fellowship with God, recognizes the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to pay for their sin, receives this gift, believing in His name, is given the right to be adopted as a child of God. That's the good news. Through Christ, God made a new covenant promise with man. Now that brings me full scope to what we are stepping into today as God continues to reaffirm His covenant promise with the man Abram. And our main idea today, that is if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to grab hold of this, and it is challenging. That is, belief in the promise of God is seen through obedience to the commands of God. Belief in the promise of God is visually seen through obedience to the commands of God. Now, as we step into this, I want to preface it by saying, if you're here today and you just aren't sure whether or not you have been emptied and refilled by the life-giving hope of Jesus, then your one challenge for today is to ask the question, am I redeemed? Have I believed in the name of Jesus as the only way for salvation? And if you are uncertain, I want you to sit with that. And if you are uncertain, then I even want you to consider staying after service today and having a conversation about that because it is the most important thing. And if we do nothing else today, it's for you to hear and understand the good news that Jesus gave His life for you.
And it's the very thing that unites us together as the church and nothing else. The rest of you who would say, yes, I recognize my sinfulness. I recognize that it is only in Christ that I am made new by the power of the Spirit of God. Then I want you to wrestle with the challenge of what does the condition of my heart reveal about where I am at? And we're going to see what God challenges Abram with in this text. But I want to pray. And then we're going to jump into Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. Father, we come to you and we recognize that at the very fabric of who we are, the gospel has to be central. The good news that there is hope in Christ. But in that, Lord, that we would recognize that we are sinful beings separated from you. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Open our eyes, Lord, to the truth of your word that we would be motivated not just towards surviving, but towards holiness and godly living for your glory and not our own. Unite us around this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 17, starting in verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be Blameless. Everyone say blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now this is really setting the scene for what's about to happen. Abram is 99 years old. And if we go back and we remember the last time we were in Genesis, Abram had a son through Hagar, his wife's maidservant, and his name was Ishmael. Now, the reality is, is at the end of chapter 16, if you glance right up, it says that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So that makes this 13 years later. Ishmael would have been 13 years old, and the ongoing animosity we can assume continued based in our conversation last week. And God appears here to Abram, And he speaks his name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Now, what's really interesting about this is when God enters a conversation this way, it should cause us to step back even in our own lives and go, there is only one Who is almighty. The God of the universe. El Shaddai. And in that same breath we could recognize God affirming to this man Abram. I am over all things. I am in control. I am the source of what will be the fulfillment of this promise given to you. And there is no other. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, verse 3 of 17, it says, Abram then fell on his face. This happens throughout Scripture and honestly is something that we, we don't resonate with much. 
even though we probably should. That in the presence of God's glory and His majesty, that man becomes prostrate on the ground. And then God begins to speak to Abram and reaffirm the promise and the covenant that He's given to him through this whole journey. But jump with me to verse 9. And in the midst of this, you'll notice that it says, And God said to Abraham, and you might go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what happened? Now, I'm curious, how many of you, when we started through this journey, uh, and I started talking about Abram, went, I always knew him as Abraham. How many of you thought that? A couple of you did, all right? Here's what happened just before this. Look at verse 5. God says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but name, your name shall be called Abraham. And you might go, what's the significance? Here's the significance. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. In the midst of this, consider what this would have meant For reminding Abraham now, once again, over and over of the promises of God. God had promised to build a nation through the man Abram. And now, every time someone would speak his name, he would be reminded of the promises of God. Hello, father of a multitude. Father of a multitude, what should we do today? Over and over and over again, the promises of God spoken even through his name. So from this point forward, you will read his name as Abraham. God's sovereignty in changing his name in fulfillment of the promise of God to remind Abram of God's faithfulness. Let's continue in verse 9. As for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, then. Now, if we're honest, this is one of these passages in Scripture that we are often aware of, but we don't spend much time in. And it was, it was kind of humorous when Chris asked me this week, what's your message on this week? Prepping for music. And I said, it's on circumcision. And he went, okay. But there is great significance here that we miss if we just blow by these truths that I want to highlight. And then I want to take you to New Testament, New Covenant in Christ significance where we see these two things together in God's redemptive plan. The first thing we notice in here is that this is a physical expectation that takes place 
after, everyone say after, after Abram's faith. Now Abraham's faith. If we go back to chapter 15, verse 6, and here God, Abram had started to question how God was going to fulfill his promise because he remained childless. And so God reaffirmed, he took him outside and look at the stars, said, your offspring will number the stars. And in verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, and he believed the Lord and it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in God's promises before the physical sign was given. And the reason this is so important is because we can easily read something like this and go, does that mean that circumcision, this physical act, is what saved the people? And the answer should be a resounding no. Rather, this physical expectation was put in after the mark of faith in Abraham's life. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. Where he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as what? A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Belief in the promises of God is seen in obedience to the commands of God. You see this? You see this impact? A physical expectation that takes place after Abraham. Abraham's faith. Secondly, we see as this is a physical sign of a God-given promise. Now, it's interesting here that if you go back into historical records, circumcision existed before God's call on Abraham to do this. Okay? Secular cultures had practiced this for various Random reasons. And so now God takes something that was, was really somewhat secular in nature and He brings it about to affirm a promise that He has already given. Now there's some other examples of this that we see. Earlier in Genesis, God puts His bow in the sky as a reminder of His promise never to flood the earth in that way again. But if we go even forward and we look at the cross, the Romans were crucifying people well before Jesus. And yet, through Christ, there is a promise that is now associated with the cross that prior to Christ never was. God is in the business of taking physical entities and putting them in our view to remind us of his promises. A physical sign of a God given promise. Now, I have to wonder 
what in the world Abraham is thinking at this point. We know he's on his face. And I just speculate and go, did he at that moment kind of raise his face up like, did I just hear that right? <laughs> this, is, this is not what you would expect in your consistent conversation with God. It doesn't say he hesitated to obey, but we have to wonder. And yet God continues. Let's look at verse 15. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. So now not only changes Abra, Abram's name to Abraham, but Sarai to Sarah, which Sarah's, both of those mean princess. Reminding that princesses have kings. And God had promised to establish nations through them. I will bless her, verse 16. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. This is the first instance that God says it will be through Sarah that he fulfills his promise. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself. Now, we have to resonate with this. Abraham is 99 years old. Okay? When you read this, we, we should be able to laugh with Abraham. And he goes, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then Abraham, I love this, he reminds God of what they already have. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It's almost like Abraham goes, God, did you forget? I already have a son. And I'm thinking God must have been like, did you forget that you did that? That was your plan, not mine. Now, praise the Lord that God uses our attempts at make doing this our way for His glory. And we saw the example of God reminding Hagar that He's a God who sees. And He promised much in the midst of such a mess. Verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard, I have heard you. Behold, get this, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. God is faithful. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but... I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now, once God leaves Abraham, now springs into obedient action in the rest of this chapter, Abraham carrying out the command that God had given him. And this reveals the third understanding important in both this narrative and our own lives as the church. And that is circumcision here exists as a physical affirmation 
that God's way is the only way. Abraham had faith that God's commands were what we were to be obedient to. God's way was the only way. And just like when God told Abraham that he needed to get up and go to an undisclosed place. Here, Abraham doesn't question God's command, no matter how off the wall it may have seemed. He trusted the promises of God and obeyed the commands of God. Now, to emphasize that God's way was the only way, if we look back at verse 14, it says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We actually see this happen in the book of Exodus where Moses has not circumcised his sons and God is about to kill him because he has disobeyed and Moses has to repent of this and actually walk in obedience. We could parallel this with John fourteen six when we understand that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no, who, who comes? Who comes, church family? No one. Everyone say, no one. No one comes to the Father but through me, being Jesus. God's way is the only way. We either do this God's way or we do it the wrong way. Faith in God looks like obedience to God's commands. Faith in God looks like trust in God's promises. Faith in God looks like confidence in God's purposes. And as James chapter 2 would say, faith without works is what? It's dead. Here's, here is the humbling reality that we need to hear, church family. Listen carefully to this because it sits as my greatest fear for you listening to this today. If there is no fruit, we should be concerned about the authenticity of faith. If there is no fruit, we should be concerned about the authenticity of faith. Now, you will never hear me get up and point a finger at someone and go, I guarantee that this person is condemned to hell. And in the same breath, you will never hear me get up and say, I guarantee this person will be in eternity. Why? Because in the scope of the heart condition of man, none of us can judge that. You and I do not have the ability to look at someone and go, I'm sure that you are going to hell or going to heaven. God knows this. But this is something between you and the Lord and we as the church 
are called to, guess what? Keep each other accountable. How do we do that? We do that by looking at the fruit the person is producing or the lack thereof and then committing to say, we're going to exhort you to be more like Jesus. And yet Matthew 7 is a humbling reminder that many will say to the Lord on that day, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. God calls his people to not only spiritual faithfulness, but that physically they would be set apart. And this physical difference would be a sign of the promise between God and the seed of Abraham. We see this in the exhortation to circumcise every male. We see this in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Everyone say new. The old has passed away. The old, the new has come. Romans 6.1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 1 John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In application, church, I want you to consider this question. Does my heart condition testify to my faith or my flesh? Does the condition of my heart testify more to God's grace in my life and the faith I've placed in Him or to my own fleshly yearnings, desires? What does the condition of my heart testify to? In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about a circumcision that takes place in the heart and correlates these two things. Where he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are the law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The condition of your heart reveals whether you are a child of the promise or cut off from the kingdom of God. There is one way. And his name is Jesus. When Abraham was called by God to go, he went. When Abraham was told by God that a nation would come from him, he believed. When Abraham encountered God, he had faith that God would do what he said he would. And though Abraham faltered in his sin, he made it his aim to walk in obedience to God's instruction. Do we do the same? Now I want to shift this in thought to communion. Because in the same way that circumcision was meant to be an external sign and reminder of the faith of God's people their commitment to the one way God had for the redemption, so too communion is intended to serve this purpose. Now listen closely. The danger here is the same danger that would have been for the nation of Israel that I confuse the reminder with the call to faith. The act of circumcision did not save anyone, nor does the act of taking communion save you. Rather, this is meant to be a sign and reminder that I believe and am choosing to follow the one way. If I take this but do not believe, then I lie to myself and to those around me that I am united in Jesus' name. The hope is, when we come to the Lord's table, we do so to remind one another that this is where our hope lies, in Jesus. As we prepare to take this, I just want to read this passage from Colossians. It says, In Him also you were circumcised with an uncircumcision made without hands, By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The promises of God are rooted in the hope given to us in Christ. And apart from him, we are nothing. 
But there is hope in Jesus.